I want to start with a story that uh, we've mentioned once before here. Very important story. One of my favorites. The, the story of the giraffe and the goat. The giraffe and the goat had this friendly relationship. They're both grazing. The, the giraffe's eating the trees. The goat's eating the grass. And one day, the giraffe turns to the goat and says, listen, uh, hey man, I, we've never talked much, but have you ever <clears throat> considered raising your head to see more than the grass? He says, uh, no, you see my head's shaped this way. <clears throat> he says, well, let me just tell you, you're missing out because there's a world out there and you should really see it. He says, yeah, but it's going to strain my neck and I, I'll have to stand on my hind legs. You have to first sell me on this. You know, tell me what this world's about so I'll see if I can, if I'm interested in putting in the work. He says, well, man, it's just clouds, a sky, mountains, a horizon, <clears throat> water, streams, trees, plants. And he spends days and he's, he's, uh, he's grooming this goat to put in the effort to stand up and see the world. And finally the day arrives, the goat's like, wow, this sounds just majestic. I really do want to see it, and uh, I'm ready. So it's that fateful Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, and the goat kind of does the effort there. It climbs up even on the giraffe's back, and it's standing, and uh, it starts to look around, and the giraffe is going, he's waiting for the reaction, and the goat's just giving him this blank stare. He says, hey, this is what we talked about. Isn't it beautiful? The goat says but I can't eat it. <laughs> but I can't eat it. It's a very, very deep metaphor for the idea that first, you can get so wrapped up in your own self that unless you can eat it, nothing has value. But that's a negative lesson. <clears throat> Tonight, we're talking about a big night. We're recapping a third of the Tanya. Tanya's 53 chapters, we're 17 in. So we're trying to, I hope everyone's here tonight for five hours, we got a whole thing coming. <laughs> but uh, we're gonna try to condense it so that we can walk away with the takeaways, the primary takeaways from what it is that the Tanya has to teach us. And in that way, we're gonna be the positive goat. <clears throat> we're gonna be the goat who looks for relevance. See, the, the metaphor of eating is the idea that everything needs to be relevant. You know, God's biggest enemies are not the haters. People that fight Judaism are not God's biggest enemies. God's biggest enemies are those that have apathy. 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 The ones that don't care. Lack of interest or, yeah, as the guy said, to his friend, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> so, so uh, the relevance. Relevance is what we're looking for. Relevance is what we look for in our lives. Every time we encounter something spiritual, we always want to know how it's relevant because that's what makes it meaningful. And there's something very, very fascinating about Hasidus as a whole. The Tanya, of course, is the fundamental classic of Hasidic philosophy. <clears throat> but something about Hasidus is that nothing about it is novel. Nothing about the teachings of Hasidism are new. But it's all about relevance. That's what Hasidism is about all the concepts that were already scattered around the Torah and were there just distilling it, demystifying it, and making it relevant. And let me, let me frame that by talking about spirituality as a whole. You know, Kabbalah. Put Kabbalah in the title of a class and everybody comes, right? <laughs> Kabbalah, it's a very catchy, it's a very attractive part of Torah. And it is the esoteric, mystical, secret element of the Torah. And traditionally, Kabbalah was 
for a secret, exclusive society. We all hear about those, you know, legends that you couldn't learn till you were 40, the Zohar, right, right. and uh, the whole thing, it was kept for the select few, and it really was that way. There was an element of Torah that for generations was hidden from people. And there's a reason for it, not because it's hocus pocus, and not because you might get lightning if you learn it. It had to do with the fact that Kabbalah was not meant to be studied. It was meant to be lived. Kabbalah was a lifestyle of getting in tune with the innate godliness within you. In other words, Torah teaches that every single being in this world is imbued with a godliness, the godly life force that keeps it alive. The inner God, if we can call it that. And not everybody was privy to that. People lived their lives and they farmed and they worked hard and they learned Talmud or whatever it was. But a select few wanted to live a lifestyle where they could access the godliness. And that's where Kabbalah was the key to it. If you studied the spiritual esoteric dimension of the world about Hashem, about the personality of godliness, about the spiritual worlds and realms, these were keys to open up for you a window into a regimen of self-refinement. In other words, it was not for the faint-hearted. We think they learned Kabbalah because they were trying to keep it secret. The reason why a select few learned Kabbalah was because they were the only ones that were ready to commit to living that way. You can't just uh, have access to Hashem and then eat donuts. It's not, it doesn't work. So, conventionally, Kabbalah was hidden from people. The Baal Shem Tov, who began the Hasidic movement, made the case, or he introduced the notion that perhaps we could make this lifestyle available to everybody. He was of the opinion that Hasidism can distill godliness enough that the simple person can enjoy its benefits just like the most saintly person. So there you have the entirety of the movement saying we're not novel, we're just making it relevant. Now it's going to be so that me and you, not only the tzaddiks of our time, could experience Hashem. Now, of course, when you make, when you make something that exclusive available to society, it requires adaptation. We're not going to live in the same way. We're going to have to make some tweaks and some, some, some uh, maneuvers so that everybody can access it. And one of the most important, and I don't want to get into this too, too long now, but mo- one of the most important elements that Hasidism introduced was the concept that we need a tzaddik to connect to. That connection between the less holy and the holier person was essential to maintaining the, the life of Hasidism. Because me and you, as plain people, remain distant. Our souls are plugged, they're stuffed, they're far, they're, 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 uh, they're closed off to being really in tune with Hashem. But through somebody who is living, walking, talking, connection to Hashem, when we hang around them, we get a sense that God is real. When we hang around them, we, we tune into His holiness and thereby into our holiness, which is the real, the real deal. Not about submitting. It's about bringing the fire to the torch so that your fire gets bigger. Osmosis, or what Hasidus calls Hitkashrut, which is connection to somebody higher up on the ladder. Higher up on the ladder. The ladder. The ladder. The and, and that was... <coughs> that was, that was Hasidus' thing. Every person, the ordinary person, the inexact person, the imperfect person, could enjoy a relationship with Hashem. And... With that backdrop, let's zoom in to what the Tanya is focused on specifically. And that is the soul. And again, just like with the entire Hasidism, the concept of the soul is not novel. I know when we think of soul, we think of mysticism and uh, deep stuff. But the word soul actually appears in the very first page of the Torah. Forget the Talmud, the written Torah mentions the soul on the very first page. Hashem blew into Adam's nostrils a soul. Nefesh chaya. So this is nothing new. But Hasidus, first Kabbalah, and then Hasidus came to 
make it relevant. The soul, there's a million takeaways on soul, but let's just, let's just say the soul is the deep-seated belief that life is more than biomass interacting in the right ways. The idea that every living thing has a godly force, something beyond the neutrons and protons and electrons or croutons or whatever, <laughs> the, 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 all the things. <laughs> beyond all the right elements moving around in the right ways, but that there's, that there's something deeper than it. And the idea of transcendence within the world. It's the force of every living thing. It's at the core of every living thing and especially at the core of us as Jews. And that's nice to know. The Tanya, Hasidism as a whole, but the Tanya specifically wants more. We want the relevance of the soul. We want to know what can I do with it and how can I use its tools and potentials to bring me in touch with Hashem. Like the goat. How, how can I eat it? How can I eat my soul and enjoy it and benefit from it and, and uh, use it to its fullest? Just as an aside, there's a fascinating story of the Rebbe who... Uh, you know, the Rebbe was a completely different type of human being, a, a completely spiritual man, a miracle worker with tremendous powers. But whenever confronted with that, of course, in his humility, he would push it off and say that, you know, it's, it's Hashem's blessing and the whole thing, which it is, of course, but kind of never wanted to take credit for what he did. And there was this one person who very pointedly, I think it was in 1960, came into a private audience and he said, he just, he just asked the question that everybody was thinking. He just said, they say about you, that you have special powers. Can you talk about that? Do you, ha- do you have them or do you not? It's like, he just asked him, it's a yes or no. How would you get out of that one? You know? The Rebbe said, every Jew has special powers. But, but, through consistent application to the Torah and its principles, some people can be more in touch with them than others. Which is, which is the secret here. It's the, the idea of to what degree, to the extent, to the extent you're in touch with your soul, you will be able to have special powers. Because that's really what lies at the core of each of us. And we'll talk about this next week in chapter 18 and 19, fascinating stuff about the unique special power of the soul. But... We want the relevance of the soul. Nice plug, nice plug right? Should, we always do cliffhangers here. <coughs> it, by the way, the, the title page of the Tanya says, this book is based on the Torah's passage where, where Moshe, in the name of Hashem, said that the Torah is close to you. Close, I like to translate as relevant. This has been a search since time immemorial. People want to know, is Torah relevant? Can I bring this into my life? Can I apply it? Can I use it to transform the quality of my relationship with Hashem? And that's what the Tanya came to do, to show how it's close, how it's relevant, how your soul, not my soul, every person individually's soul is accessible. And uh, funny enough, we're talking about making a summary of the 17 chapters. The truth is, the juice of this point is driven home in the next 17 chapters. So chapters 18 to 34 really deal with what lies at the core of the soul. And uh, that's my next cliffhanger. So, <laughs> But what does happen in the first 17 chapters of Tanya, which we want to really close in on tonight, is the stage is set elaborately for the clincher to happen. In other words, we need to first identify, like I like, uh, if I could put it this way, the first 17 chapters answer the following two questions. What is a Jew? And who is a Jew? What am I? And who am I? They sound like the same question, but they're going to be different. 
In other words, before we can get in touch with how to use the eye, we have to first know what the eye is and who the eye is. And that's what really happens, what we've been discussing for the past four some odd months, and these, uh, the, these 17 chapters. <coughs> and let's see if we can just distill it to a couple of basic points so that we can walk away with the wholesome picture of the first third of the entire Tanya. It took us 17 weeks to get here. How are we going to do this all in one night? I don't, I don't know. But Let's drink. Give you the drink thing. <laughs> in one hour. Exactly. In one hour. We'll definitely start with the Lachayim. That's for sure the way it goes. <coughs> and we need some drops. <laughs> so here's the intro. Here's the, here's the frame of reference, which is a, Kabbalist, a uniquely Kabbalistic position. Many people today talk about this, and the Torah has debated this for, for, for much time. Is there such a thing as absolute right and wrong? Or is morality relative? Is there an absolute code of what classified as good and what classifies as evil, what classifies as holy, what classifies as unholy, right and wrong. And of course, like every question like this, there's nuance, but as a theme, as a theme, the Torah believes there is absolute right and wrong. You either fit into this category or that category. Now, the categories may not be the same that we like to define them as good and bad. It doesn't necessarily work that way. But there, as we're going to see, there are two primary categories that every single thing fit into. And that is the ideal and the less than ideal. The perfect and the imperfect. Kabbalah believes that there is such a thing as the perfect man. There is such a thing as the perfect man. (laughs) All right, the perfect woman, okay. (laughs) And guess what? Kabbalah says that the perfect man exists inside each of us. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad she's not here. <laughs> oh man. Send her send her to, to Gabe. Send her to Gabe. <laughs> the perfect man. Nobody's perfect. Therefore I'm perfect. But I'm Julian. It's a good one. <laughs> At the same time, there is an imperfect version of man. And the imperfect version of man, guess what, says Kabbalah, is also in us. This is the premise in us. This is the premise of the Tanya. There's an ideal man and there's the non-ideal man. And, and for, for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to call them man and animal. I know we've talked about in Tanya the two souls, the godly soul and the animal soul, and there's a reason for that name. But first, it's man versus animal. There's a man inside us There's an animal inside us. That's what we are. Who we are is the one we choose to give dictatorship to. Remember that story of the Indian... Dictatorship. Rulership. Remember that story of the Indian chief? Indian chief takes his grandson out to the park. And they're talking about life. And the chief tells his grandson, he says, Grandson, I want you to know, inside of me, inside of you, there's two wolves. One wolf is generous, 
kind, selfless, altruistic, honest, genuine, pure, holy, pristine, noble. That's one wolf. The other wolf, selfish, greedy, all about self-gratification, angry, upset, hopeless, desperate, negative. Two wolves. Grandson says, Grandpa, really? Inside you? Two. Inside me? Two wolves. Says, Grandpa, two wolves inside me. Who wins? And the chief answered, The one you feed. The one you feed. battle is within the battle is within and that's the underpinning is we're a combination of two personalities and the battle is our life <clears throat> the first eight chapters of the Tanya are dedicated to defining the what Let's get to know these two personalities, this man and this animal inside us. And then, the next nine chapters are the battle. And the way we divided the what definition of the personalities is we said every, and we'll just call it now soul, because we have two souls inside of us, but we'll just call the man and the animal, the two personalities, the two driving forces within us, each have a core, tools, and behavior. That's the three levels, the basic makeup of every soul. Core, or the fancy English word for that is essence, tools, and behavior. And hinging on the core is how the tools and the behavior turn out. So once you've defined what lies at the core of man and the core of animal, it's very easy to see how each manipulates their tools to behave differently. What is the core of man? And by man, I mean the man inside us, the ideal man. The core of man, as we've come to discover it, is God. And that's why we call it the godly soul. And what I mean by that, when I say the core of man is God, is that the core of the man element in our identity is conscious. It has a conscience. It's aware of its responsibility. It's aware of truth. It's transcendental. Very, very interested in, in the transcendent. Man inside us loves things that are outside of his physical perception. He wants to know what's before, what's after, what's on top, what's on bottom. What's behind everything. Deeply committed selfless, very, very truthful, very, very truthful, and completely objective. That means everything has self out of the equation. So the core of man in that way is God. The core of animal the simple way to say it would be self, but the more sophisticated way would be urge. Urge, drive, passion. Ego is the core of it. Yeah. Urge to what? We don't know to what, to whatever, to whatever it's at the moment. The power of the animal lies in its power, in its force, in its drive. And whatever is at its disposal in that moment will be the subject of the urge. It's not, you know, to contrast, it's not interested in truth. Not because it doesn't care about truth. This is fundamental. Not because it doesn't care about truth. But because it, that's not the yardstick. The measuring stick is, is, is me. So who cares about truth? Truth means 
the, the very premise of truth means I'm leaving myself to examine what is the truth outside of me. If you're wrapped up in yourself, like the negative element of the goat, the goat wasn't against the world. It's not like he didn't care about the, it was just, that, that wasn't his yardstick. Things didn't start past himself, past his own nose. So th- there was no room for that. It's all about the self. It's entirely subjective and there's no room for, for objectivity. So let's just, I've talked a lot, let's just nail it. The question is, when we talk about core, what is the center? For man, the man element, the center is Hashem, the center is purpose. For the animal element, the center is the self. And, I mean, anybody can see that these two things will clash. If inside of one being there's an identity that says, get me out, and there's an identity that says, bring me in, there's going to be a clash. And guess what? We live out this clash. This is what we live. We live the clash of the, this, this consistent paradox, this dichotomy of our personalities. And, uh, but that's the way it is. There's just two core elements inside us. By the way, Tanya is very focused on the individual because it is about the comprehensive program for our lives. But the same is true on the macro. You know, in the world, there's two core elements. What we call Kedusha and Klipa in Tanya. It's the holiness and the husk around the shell, around the holiness. We call it loosely good and evil, but it's not really what it is. It's the same question. If you want to know if something is holy or unholy, what's the one question you have to answer? What is at the center of the reality? Is it God or is it self? If it's God, you know it's holy. If it's self, you know it's unholy. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean it's bad. But there is absolutes. It's, it's one or the other. And that comes because everything in this world is divided into two core things. The core that's God and the core that's pursuit of self. Now, what are the tools? We know the core. What are the tools? Tools is a very important word because tools are exactly that. They're just tools. They're means by which a core could express itself or a being could express itself. And the Tanya teaches over the first eight chapters that there's two sets of tools, intellectual tools and emotional tools, the mind and the heart. And each soul gets one. Each soul gets a mind, each soul gets a heart. Of course, we only have one mind and one heart. But the idea is that the tools can be used by either core. There's a series of intellectual tools. We talked about this at length. The conception, the conceptualization, and the application. And then we have these series of emotional tools, distance, rejection, closeness, all kinds of things. But we're going to keep that out of the conversation. Just the two elements, intellect, emotion, understanding, and feeling. And... Let's talk about the mind and heart for a second. Because it's very, it's gonna tie into the cores. The mind, by definition, is cold objectivity. Pursuit of intellect, pursuit of knowledge, academics. These are, by definition, dispassionate. There's no excitement involved. You try learning when you're excited, it's not going to work. You can get inspired when you're excited, but you can't learn when you're excited. To learn Talmud or to learn a passage in the Torah, you've got to, got to be cold in a way. You've got to be settled. And it's objective because of that. It's objective. That's the strength of the mind, the biggest strength, and it's also the biggest weakness think about it in this way. I once heard from one of my teachers. He said, the mind is the power to examine the truth even though it means nothing to you. But it also has the power to discover the truth and have it mean nothing to you. 
You get it's it's very very interesting in that way. In other words, we can approach a topic, go, this means nothing to me, but I'm ready to examine it. But then when you discover it, it'll still mean nothing to you if it stays in the intellectual realm. Because that's the nature of the mind, cold objectivity. So it's the strength of it, but it's the weakness of it. The heart is the complete opposite. The heart is subjective, passionate. The drive, it's all about the feelings and the excitement. That's the biggest strength of the heart because it allows you to care. It allows you to get connected to things at the same time. It's the biggest weakness because everything is centered around you. So these are the two sets of tools that every soul gets. Every soul, every element, the man and the animal inside us get the chance to use intellect and they get the chance to use the heart. But, and this is the crucial but, it's easy to see how the heart can be swayed both ways. But if a mind is objective, if a mind by definition means outside of self, doesn't that fit to the godly side, the man identity? How does a core, an animalistic core, which is full of self, how does it use a mind objectively? And the answer is, it, it, it does depend on the core. Let me, let me frame it this way. The, uh, the, the mind, you know, here's the interesting thing about the mind. hard for some people to admit it, but it is the truth. The mind has an innate sense of what's rational and what's irrational. But it doesn't have an innate sense of what's right and wrong. So the mind can be a very good, a very good litmus test for things that make sense and don't make sense. But it cannot be a litmus test for what's right and wrong. And therefore, Depending on your commitment to whatever it is, your mind can rationalize it if it wants. So the mind works by very specific rules. You'll never find a mind that makes up garbage. Maybe you will, but <laughs> I mean, as, as a theme, if a mind is functioning properly, everything's going to have to equal out in the intellectual equations. But there is an option that the mind will rationalize something completely wrong. And that's where the core comes in. The core of man, which is God, when it uses its brain, when it uses its mind, when it uses its intellectual capacity, it says... Help me get in touch with this truth. Help me rationalize this truth so I can lead the heart. Heart's a very powerful tool. Passion is a very powerful tool. Subjectivity is a very powerful tool. So Mr. Brain, help me get closer to that goal. I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna bring you to my space where I operate. I'll show you transcendence, I'll show you purpose, I'll show you depth. And I want you to help me lead the heart. The other core, the animal core, jumps on the mind for its opportunities. And it says, instead of help me lead the heart, it says, help me justify the heart. Invariably, when the animal is at work, the, you'll, you'll find that the heart is really in charge and the mind is just there maneuvering it and making excuses and uh, all right, the heart's out here, so. 
and and uh, and the brain is just there as a helper. I don't compete with food. I, I don't compete with food. I learned that long ago. <laughs> it's not worth it. Feed the body, then feed the soul. Huh? With the goat. Hey. <laughs> I sympathize too. <laughs> I'm not, uh, don't worry about it. It's good. So the core dictates. The core dictates how the tools are used. The man inside us, the God inside us says, let's use out the objectivity of the brain and help us gain control. And the animal inside us says, let's use the brain to help us lose control. And what ends up happening is, what ends up happening is, is that uh, in the man element, the godly soul's version of reality, the brain wins. It can educate the heart to an extent, though the heart will never fully appreciate everything. Kind of like, uh, the, the, the heart will follow, but it'll never catch up. Think about it in those terms. The heart will follow the mind, but it'll never catch up. That is, that, that's the man's version of reality. In the animal's version of reality, the mind follows the heart. But it's both, it, it, it uses both. The animalistic core inside us doesn't abandon the brain. It just says, actually, let me manipulate you. And let me, let me use you to help me. So, the makeup of both souls is basically the same. They both get a set of intellectual and emotional tools, but they are vastly different because of how the core functions. And then, of course, behavior is the result of however your core and tools are set up. That's how you'll act out. And uh, that's our life. Our bodies are the battlefield. Our bodies are the battlefield for these two souls. And uh, they each take up, take up positions, you know, the, 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 the animals, the godly soul takes up residence in the brain. The animalistic soul takes up residence in the heart. That's their stronghold, that's their fortress. And from there they shoot out, they fight to take over. And uh, like we said when we discussed chapter 9, there, the one thing about these two souls is that there's no UN. There's no peace negotiations. There's no 50-50. There's no ceasefires. There's no... Uh, Alan, we can always count on you there. It's, it's unconditional surrender. Each one wants complete and total dictatorship, rulership of the body. Wow. Well, yeah. Yes. But that's... That's the what am I. The first eight chapters of the Tanya, eight, nine chapters are, what are you? You are a combination of the ideal man and the animal. And you're going to struggle with it forever. The question now is, who am I? Who am I going to be? Am I going to be the man? Or am I going to be the animal? And that question is left to us to answer. The what am I, we don't get to answer. What am I? That's what we are. Hashem made us living organisms, humans, with two cores. And with a body where these cores fight it out. The who we are, that's the choice we get to make, which is, by the way, a fantastic um, chiddush, novelty of this whole idea. 
because what it basically says is you are never corrupt. You can never become corrupt. You're always a mensch. No matter what. And at any moment, you can choose to recapture the playing field. This is discussed at length in chapter 28. Alter makes one of the most fantastic statements in the Tanya. We're not one being which can become good or become bad. It's just the question of what we're giving voice to at the moment. So that's one, that's one very powerful takeaway from the what am I. When we know what we are, even before we decide who we are, before that, we already begin with the premise that we always remain pristine. We always remain clean. Part of us is always anchored in the truth. Never loses touch with it. Never. It's one of the great novelties of this Kabbalistic teaching of two souls. That's part one. But then we do have to live out the struggle. Well, part one tells you that there's two wolves. Part two is who are you going to be? And to use that metaphor, who are you going to feed? And there's, there's something that's inherently unfair. Somebody was saying in the beginning of the class that the, the room is weighted, you know? The, the, the struggle is weighted in a way because unless we care, and I don't know why Hashem did this, but unless we care to invest, uh, the animal's going to win. Wow. Ain't that, ain't that something? No, 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 of course, of course. We, oh, you're saying why we, why, we, why we experience it. Yes, human, human life needs tension, of course. But uh, I guess it's just, it's, you know, in, at some points in our life, we do say it is unfair. Because, because the idea of struggle, yeah, of course, it brings value and meaning, and I don't, I don't want to discount that, and it is true. But, but uh, kind of from the get-go, it's, um, it's not easy being a Jew. It's not easy being a Jew. It's not cheap either. It's not cheap either. Let's not forget that. Say that again. <laughs> Should Gabe have become a neurologist instead of a cardiologist? <laughs> Gabe, Gabe have become a neurologist instead of a cardiologist? And is it too late? <laughs> but we only struggle if we care. And if we're here tonight, the assumption is that we do care. So that's why we talk about it, because we do care. We do care to win. We do fight to win. And uh, we do want to bring the battle to the next level. We, we, we want to step it up. And what happens from chapter 10 to chapter 17, which is part two of the summary, is we identify three types of personalities who engage in the battle. And to put a positive twist on it, I want to say all three personalities are winning to different degrees. I know we've described it in the past as the, the two extremes. The guy who makes the winner and the loser and the fighter. That's typically how it's described. The winner, the loser, and the eternal fighter. But let's talk about it today from this perspective. The very fact that we're fighting is already a sign of life. So no matter where we're at on the spectrum, we're winning. But there is different degrees of the level to which we're winning. The tzaddik, that's the name of the first personality described in chapter 10, is the complete winner. He has won completely to the extent that he has wiped out the consciousness of the animal core, the animal soul. So he only has one voice. There's nothing propelling him to any other side. We call them in these classes the inspired Jew. 
because there's nothing about him that's not inspired. And think about it in the terms we used before. The essence of the godly soul conquered the essence of the animal soul. The intellect of the godly soul conquered the intellect of the animal soul. The emotions of the godly soul conquered the emotions of the... Everything has been conquered. And so it's natural that the behavior is just a result of that. Of course, every choice he makes will be right. And by the way, just to the tzaddik's credit, the work goes backwards. You don't start with changing the core. Because if you did, there'd be no work involved. and Everything would just follow. The tzaddik has to actually work up the ladder. <clears throat> as we have it recorded in Hasidic traditions, most, tzad- most tzaddikim that we know began as benonim. That means they began with mastery of their actions, thought, and speech. From there, they wiped clean the heart, wiped clean the mind, and then the core. There are some very, very rare cases of tzaddikim which are ingrained. That's typically once in a generation. But, in this context, they won the battle. Totally won it. And the, the, the Tanya is not a book of the tzaddiks. Tzaddik gets one, tzaddik. He gets one chapter. He gets chapter 10 and that's, we don't hear about him again. Actually, we do a couple of more times, but because the book is not for them. This is a book for us. <clears throat> this, this is the book for us, us people. And us people fall into the other two categories. What we've called the Benoni, the average, the middleman, and the Russia, who is the weak man. I know it literally translates as wicked, but in the framework which we've been talking about, it's just the animal. It's the guy who compromises on his true identity. Even once. Even one compromise puts you in the level of Russia. But tonight, with our positive twist, what I want to say is the Russia is the guy who loses but compensates for it. He compensates for it. The typical way of compensation is called tshuva. There's a whole section of the Tanya on that. Maybe in 40 years we'll get to that. (laughs) Typically, we living as people as we do, we fall into the tiniest category of Russia because we've at least compromised once. But we're not, yes, we're not the lowest part of the spectrum where the Russia loses conscience. We don't fail because we don't care. We fail because we're weak. Very weak. Sometimes very weak. Sometimes humanly weak. But, but first we compensate for that. We compensate for that with tshuva. But we also compensate for that by living the reality of the benoni as often as we can. See, the Russia is the easy, the easy guy to identify because we know him. The benoni is the guy who maintains control of his thought, speech, and action. Nothing inside him is different than me and you. Same temptations, same urges, same lusts. Besides for the boring Benoni, which, which we'll get to in a minute, but typically. Natural. The natural default setting of a Benoni is that he is equally lustful to everything in the world as we are, but he doesn't let it play out in the practical. And so, though we don't live that, re, that, that level, Never acts on it and never even thinks act- actively. Thought, speech, and deed are considered the three, the three behavioral levels. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's always that aha moment, you know? You're on the right side. I wonder why the Rubus is, is, is slanted. <laughs> <laughs> but the Benoni is the, is the uh, he, he, he always wins in the practice. And the truth is, and we'll discover this as we open up a Tanya more, is that that's really all that matters to Hashem. He, he makes that very clear. It's not about not feeling different things. But it is about not letting it play out. 
And although we don't live on the level of the Benoni consistently, but we do live in the reality from time to time, and we can intentionally make the choice to live there. And that's the Russia's way of compensating for that. He does compromise, he is weak, but he acknowledges his weakness, he embraces it. And he stays aware, you know. I'm always, whenever I meet people from, from uh, that, are, that are in recovery, this is, a, this is a fundamental principle. Humility, never believing. The second you get too confident is the moment you're out. So the Russia, he's the guy that's given in. He's the, guy, he's the guy that has been an addict. So he already knows once an addict, always an addict. He never, if he's compensating for it, he never uh, stops being vulnerable. He never gets safe with himself. He never tells himself, I got it. But even the Benoni, who is the guy who hasn't fallen into addiction, he hasn't given in, but he also never gets too confident. That statement from the Talmud, even if the entire world tells you you're a tzaddik, be in your eyes like, like a Russia. doesn't say be in your eyes a Russia. That would be bad. We don't want negative self-depression. But we do want to know that you're like the weak man in the sense that at any given moment you can fall in. Never get too confident. Never get too trusting. And by the way, last week in chapter 17, one of the greatest lines in the Tanya. A Russia who compensates correctly is allowed the opportunity to regain his sensitization. His sensitization, sensitivity. It's not like once you've fallen in the pit, you're, you're, you're retrofitting for all your life. You are in a way, but... Hashem allows you to come back to the point at which you were ready to become a Benoni. It has to do with the idea of the two souls, the idea that there's always a pristine part of you. That's part of the, that's part of the, the message and how they tie in here. But that's the three personalities. Tzadik is one completely. Russia is the guy that loses but compensates. And the Benoni is the middle, not because he's average, but because... He wins in the practical, but has never fully changed his consciousness. And I know we always complain that, we don't, that the, the Russia doesn't get enough time in the Tanya because uh, somehow we all think we're, we're Russias, but the Benoni gets the most time, the most attention, because he's the ideal man. He's the hero of the Tanya and the one that we have to strive to be if only, if only for five minutes, if only for certain periods in the day. And because of that, this whole conversation evolves around different ways to maintain and achieve Benoni status. And those were our last three classes where I want to just hone in and, and close up this, this recap. Which is that uh, there's one level of Benoni where the guy's three quarters dead. You know, he has no personality. The Alter Rebbe identified the guy who's the bookworm. He has no lusts and passion, no, no appeal to material, materialism. So everything is just right by default. And the Alter Rebbe said it's even possible to develop that by habit. Habitually, you can make yourself cold to things. And uh, you could be the boring Benoni. It, it, you'll, you'll, you'll never practically do anything wrong, but not because you're fighting. And so there's nothing worthwhile about it. There's no str- it's, it's almost apathetic. It's like an apathetic good guy. Nobody wants to live around that guy. Sometimes, sometimes we wish we could have that issue, but we don't, we don't really celebrate it. We don't really like those people. You know, the fifth Rebbe, fifth Rebbe of Chabad, the Rebbe Rashab, he, he said once, uh, I think it was Simchas Torah, he said, the, the people that don't struggle, I don't like them. He used the word in Yiddish. That's loose translation. I don't like them because we need people that are fighting. But it is an option. It is an option, and it's a possible Benoni. But the ideal Benoni are the ones that fight. They fight to win. They put in the effort to win. And the effort is to simply devote time to thinking about Hashem. Many of us are ready to devote time to do things for Him. But we don't really put in time to think about Him. 
to learn about him, to study him. Because that's, that's the process that begins, <coughs> that begins the process of owning the one thing we can own, which is ourselves. Study, think, feel, and do. It's a chain. The ideal Bainani uses the mind to educate the heart, to feel excitement towards Hashem, and then to act in that way. Or, there's also, we talked about the numb Bainani, who can't get his heart aflame, but at least he, he puts in the time to, to, to think about it, and Hashem says, I'll, I'll, link, I'll link your thoughts to actions. <coughs> but that is, that is the real way. And there is a third type of Benoni, which we're going to discuss in the coming weeks, that uh, is not ready to do that, but he does plug in to his, his, his uh, man core, his godly soul. When he taps into the specialty of his godliness, he's able to use that as a catalyst, as a springboard, to, uh, to engage in the process of mastering himself. And we're gonna, we'll talk about that next week. But this is the Benoni which is developed in the Tanya as the guy who masters himself. And from chapter 14, if I could just borrow the line, the Alter Rebbe there gets graphic with a conversation that you're supposed to have with your heart in a moment of passion. And he says, the question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to be an idiot or not? That, that's the words he uses. He uses the word shota, which is a fool. He said, do I want to be a fool or not? The foolish way is to give in. The non-foolish way is to master. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves each time. The Alter Abba acknowledges. Is it in everybody's capacity to live there? Not necessarily. But is it in everyone's capacity to live there once in a while? To rent some space there? Airbnb. To get an Airbnb in the Benoni section. <laughs> yeah, is there any? Yeah, exactly. You can. You can, and therefore, and therefore we must. We owe it to ourselves to engage in even a mini version of the Benoni lifestyle. Is that and, just about being conscientious and, and, and mindful? Mindful. Yeah. But mindful in the context of Judaism. And this, that, that really is true because it is about being mindful. The, the reason typically we give in is because we're feeling depressed, weak. Something is blocking our mindfulness. We're feeding the animal. We're feeding the other wolf. And it's all about moving the hand to feed, to feed the right wolf. So the what am I is the two personalities. Is, that, is there a um, correlation? You, you talked about the brain and the heart. Yeah. And the brain kind of being cold, logical space and the heart. But is it really mind over, over Mind over heart. Mind over heart. Moach shalit al-halev is the Zohar's way of putting it. The mind ruling over the heart. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's the ultimate method. If you can engage your mind in an intellectual process where it can lead the heart and, and mind you, it, it, doesn't, it, it won't lead the heart all day. Sometimes it'll just rule the heart. It'll just say, look, this is what we're doing. We'll talk about it later. And then later we have a class on it and we talk about it and why did I make this decision and why did I do that? But in the moment, sometimes it's just about taking the reins and, and doing it. So the what we are, we don't have a choice. But the who we are, we have every choice. And it behooves us to make the right choice. I'll just close with this story. There was a man, there is a man. His name is Rabbi, I have his name written down here. His name is Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Hamnik. This is not a, not, it's not a Chabad rabbi, but uh, recently some of his letters that he wrote about his time in the 50s was discovered in, a, in his attic. And he has some notes there about a time when he came to Chabad just to visit, to see what was going on. And he did meet the Rebbe. First year the Rebbe was Rebbe, 1951. And uh, he writes there that he, he came inside to the Rebbe's office 
And he said, look, I hear about Hasidism. I want to learn Hasidus. I want to give it a try. What, what, what do you recommend? He asked, what, what, what do you recommend? <laughs> What's on the menu? <laughs> What's on the menu? <laughs> yeah. guy. He actually has some Chabad cousins today that, that, uh, that are part of the community. But he, he, he's, a, he's a 90-year-old now. He's very, very, he's an older man. But he, um, he asked her, what should I do? Rebbe said, learn, learn the Tanya. So he picked up a Tanya, and uh, he read through it. He came back a couple of months later. He says, I, I tried the Tanya, but uh, I don't get it. It's a different language. It's, it's, it's Kabbalistic. It's not my thing. So the Rebbe said, okay, try the book called Derech Mitzvotecha. This is a book from the Alter Rebbe's grandson, the Tzamech third Rebbe of Chabad. So try that takes the book, comes back a few months later, and he says, Rebbe, I, I opened up the Derech Mitzvotecha, I didn't understand the word. I opened up the Tanya, I didn't understand the word. So the Rebbe told him. The Rebbe said, Abyssal has to verstand. A little bit you did understand. In Ganzen, versteht keiner nicht. Completely, nobody understands. So, you're like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody gets something. Nobody gets the whole thing. And that's what unites us. That we can sit around the table and for weeks we can examine the Tanya. And we do our best. And in the end, it's the takeaways that matter. It's what we walk away with that matters. And uh, Be'ezrat Hashem will continue moving forward on our journey. Chapter 18 next week.